welcome to our new series called Uncommon. This is the second week we're in this, by the way. Uh, if you haven't, if you're like, I wasn't here the first week, what do I do? You go online and you can watch and go through the app and watch or listen to it. I'm just curious, who, who likes superheroes? Does anyone like superheroes? Like, okay, okay, good, good. So that helps you know, you know, like how you're doing in life. If you value them, you're on the right track. Uh, no, I, what most people, <laughs> what most of us like about superheroes is their superpower. Uh, it, it's the uniqueness of what they can do that you and I may not be able to do and we wish we could do. So I went online and did some deep theological study and to find out what's the most important superpower. If you're wondering what your pastor does during the week, I just told you. So, so what I did is, and I gathered this up, and there's, there's two that are competing. They're, they're the most popular. So, so here's the two most popular, flying versus invisibility. So for, for participation, here's what I need you to do. I need you to tell someone next to you, which of these two would you want? Go ahead, go, just tell them which one. You got it? You can't have both, and you can't have one that's not on the list. All right, all right. Now, flying versus, I don't know what you would have chosen. For those of you who chose invisibility, I'm afraid of you. <laughs> because I'm not sure why you wanted that. Well, I mean, I could probably tell you. Anyways, it's a scary one. Uh, invisibility and, and fly. I don't, I don't know which one you actually prefer, if it was on that list or not. Hey, to really nerd you out, I mean, if you want to waste your life away, uh, go to superherodb.com. DB standing for database. In other words, there's a website that is a database of superpowers. I mean, there's things that you can do with your life. And there's things like that, that you can make a database of superpowers. You can go there and nerd out for a long time. Uh, but, but here's what I want you to consider. And if you've ever read a comic book or, or watched a good superhero movie, you know that a lot of times the, the plot is about the power. It's about whatever particular power that superhero has or, or that they've lost. Or there's a new person in town and they've got a new superpower that's amazing and and most of the plots in those, in those comic books and those movies is about the, the power. And in fact, that's how they create a little bit of the tension in the movie is how are they going to do this? Are they going to manage that? Where did they get it from? What, what can it do and what can't it do? And I would also, that's, we can have a serious conversation. I would say a lot of us, the tension in our lives, not just superhero lives, the tension in our lives typically revolves around power. Power is a conversation that leads you and I to a lot of stressful moments or fulfilling moments. I think, I think I can prove this. So when you consider this, the moments that you and I have felt out of control. In fact, I'm going to ask you a question. Just answer it in your head. Have you ever been in a situation that you felt like you could not overcome? Most of us would be like, yeah, I got a long list, David. You want, no, I we don't have time to process all that. But what I would tell you is a lot of the tension in our life is, is who's going to show up and can they fix it? I mean, I, I spent this last week in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> there is some power in that environment that some would say is not being used well. Maybe a lot of people would say not being used well. Uh, I had to sit down with a few elected officials, and I learned some very good things about, about what's going on and, and, and the significance of power. If you want to know what those conversations were like, 
Well, you got to wait till October. <laughs> and I'll show you those conversations. But what I've learned in life is this, is you and I crave these situations. We want to overcome the situations. We want to we have a, a situation that we know how to get through. And that's what I would tell you. Your stress points, the stuff that's going on in your life, where you get your power from to overcome or walk through, have victory, that's a big conversation. In fact, think about the moments and the places that you worry. Typically, it's when you've come to this moment going, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know if I can fix it. It's because it's common for us to rely on what we can do. You and I, when we face a problem, we, we, we disregard some things and we focus on what we're capable of doing. I mean, just think about it for yourself where the frustration places, like you, you thought about what you can or can't do at work. You're thinking, oh, oh, I want to do this well, but maybe, maybe you can't. Maybe your boss isn't who you hope they would be. If you're a student in school and you went in with this great optimism, but, but then you're like, I don't know if I can do this. For those of you who are parents, oh, you know every one of us have said, I don't know if I can do this. If you've gotten married, you don't know if you can do this. It happens to all of us in life, and it's common to rely only on what we can do. And what happens is if you rely on yourself, you are inevitably heading to a moment where you will decide if you're going to quit or not. Because you and I do that. We get frustrated because we can't do it. Let me, let me walk into my family. Uh, we, we have basketball out back in our backyard, and we love to play basketball. I love basketball. I grew up a lot of my life in Indiana, and in Indiana, everyone plays basketball. And, and so I love that, and I'm trying to teach that to my kids. My three-year-old, our three-year-old Titus, he is uh, uh, just a bucket full of sermons, illustrations. It's great. So we're playing basketball, and Titus, he's three, he's got his own little basketball goal. You know those plastic little kid basketball goals where he just shoots and has a great time, has a blast doing it. And, and, and he's got this little miniature basketball. You know, you know what I'm talking about. So we're playing basketball. He's shooting baskets on his own little basketball goal. And all of a sudden I hear him screaming. Not, not I'm in pain screaming. It's I'm really mad screaming. All of us know what that sounds like. And so I look over and expecting him to be arguing with someone else, right? No. He's got the basketball in his hand and he's yelling at the basketball. You, some of you think you're making this up. I'm not making this up. You can't make this up. My three-year-old has this miniature basketball, and he's screaming at it. It's not intelligible. I have no idea what he's saying, other than he's furious. And then I get to watch everything explode. He takes the basketball and does not shoot it at his goal. He throws it at the goal. It knocks the plastic thing over. We've seen that happen. And, and then he goes and grabs it, and he's so mad at the basketball. Now he takes it, opens up the door to the shed, throws it in the shed, and yells at it. I don't know what he's saying to it. What's funny is he realizes what he just done. Now he can't play basketball. So he goes in and grabs the basketball. And I hear yelling going on in there. If you don't know why he's yelling, I can tell you. He was mad that he couldn't get the basketball through the hoop. That was the whole problem. The whole problem was he couldn't do it. And, and what even is more embarrassing to tell you, my three-year-old had that tantrum. I have it all the time. My family will prove it to you. I get so competitive and so mad that when I can't do something, I might get a little upset. <laughs> and even if you walk it into the serious parts of life, I got to tell you, I don't know if you experience this. I have days where I think I should accomplish something, do something, and it doesn't play out the way I wanted it to, and I get mad. And I might blame other people. Uh, I might blame myself. 
Sometimes Katie gets the brunt of going, I had a bad day, so it's her fault, or it's the kid's fault, or it's Obama's fault, it's someone's fault. And I don't know if you've ever had that, but I would say when you rely on yourself and when you get upset that you are not able to accomplish something, you hit the verge of maybe quitting or at least being upset. And so that's why this power conversation, it's a big deal. So listen up. If you feel right now outnumbered by the opposition, if you feel right now that the mountain that seems to be laughing at you every day is laughing at you and you can't overcome that mountain, this moment for us as a church is a good moment. I'm going to tell you a story. It's a true story out of the Bible, but you and I are going to be able to glean something. So for those of you who feel outnumbered, who feel like you're, you're at odds with life, as in life has dealt you a, a, a bad deck of cards, and you're like, I don't know what to do. Everyone's out to get me. I don't have enough. I don't know if I can win. And if you're on the verge of quitting, oh, I'm glad you're here. We're going to talk about this, and I want to bring you to a book called Judges. We, we launched it off at the beginning uh, where I opened up the book of Judges. For those of you who, who are new to the Bible, and Judges really does not sound like an appealing book. to be like, oh, I can't wait. Uh, Judges is about a true era of time. It's when the Israelites, if you aren't familiar with the Israelites, the Israelites are that group of people that you probably saw the movie about. Uh, they used to be in slavery in Egypt, and God set them free through Moses. He split the sea. He did incredible things. Now, now, you and I, we can relate, okay? See, here's the deal with the Israelites. They made choices that did not honor God, and they got in trouble for them, had to face the consequences. They eventually would be, okay, we're sorry, and God would forgive them and restore them. If you're still not catching the drift of judges, it's when God would choose to use a group of people or an individual that did not deserve to be used, and God still used them. That's what should uh, pique our interest going, okay, I want to listen to this. So we started off, and I told one story last week. I want to tell you a different story. So here's how it plays out. The Israelites have done evil in the eyes of God again. <laughs> it, it, here's how this plays out. They, they did some evil in the eyes of God. If you don't know what the evil means, is they were doing horrible things, immoral things, things they should never be doing. And then God let the consequences be dealt to them, and they were oppressed for 20 years. They said they were sorry. They recognized that their way was not the good way. And so God intervened in their lives and gave them 40 years, 40 years of freedom. Well, then they forgot about God. You and I do this all the time. <laughs> when things are going well, you're like, God, yeah, I, I kind of remember him. You don't really focus on God when you're not at rock bottom a lot of times. Well, so they start to do evil in the eyes of God. And after the 40 years of freedom, they enter another set, seven years of oppression, a new group of people called the Midianites. Not the termites, the Midianites, just to help us all understand this. The Midianites are brought in, and God allows them to oppress the Israelites. If you don't know the story, here's how they oppress them. Here's what would happen. The Israelites wanted to take care of themselves, so they would plow their fields. They would plant seed. They would make sure that they could grow crops. They had livestock. They were making a name for themselves and a living for themselves. Well, as soon as it was time to bring the crops in, they would bring the crops in. The Midianites would come in immediately and take everything from them. It was like the essence, the, the uh, pinnacle of bullying. And they would come in and take everything. They would, they would kill all the livestock or take it with them, all the crops. They would rob them blind, and then they would even burn down all of their houses. So then the Israelites would have to rebuild, and they would rebuild. They would plant again. They would grow again. They would harvest again. And at that moment, the Midianites would come in and take it all over again. Some of you are like, I had a brother or a sister just like that. <laughs> right? Well, this got so bad, and, and, and this is for real. 
this got so bad, the Israelites began to starve. They didn't have the food that they needed. They, they couldn't actually function. And they got so bad off, they did what you and I do. When we're bad off, when we see no other place to turn, we look to God. And they said, God, obviously our way of living and what we've been doing is not the right way to do this. You've got a better plan. God, we're so sorry. And God intervened. God's like, all right, I got a plan. And he called out a guy named Gideon. Now, before you think Gideon is this amazing warrior, now he's a wimp. God has a tendency to pull out the people who are very inadequate for the role. In fact, Gideon is so scared, he's hiding. He's like, I don't want the Midianites to know that I've got food, and he's freaking out. And God's like, mm, I want you to lead an army. So, so God talks to him, and if you don't know Gideon in the story and how this plays out, Gideon's like, okay, I'll talk to you, but I'm not sure you're really God. So they go back and forth, back and forth. Gideon does something that you should not do. He decides to make God prove himself. <clears throat> be careful on that. And so God proves himself that it's really God and that he really is going to take care of Gideon and free everybody. And then Gideon's like, ah, I need you to prove yourself again. And for some reason, God decided to have patience with him and proved himself again. And Gideon's like, okay, I think you're really it. Uh, Judges 6 tells us what God said to him. Go with, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. Talking this to Gideon, now this is a big deal. If, if, if you haven't read the Bible much, get this, I am sending you. He, what he's saying is, I'm backing you. I, I'm going to give you everything you need to do what you need to do, and I'm going to be with you. That's the most important part. If he sends you, he goes with you. He does not abandon you. And that's why this is so significant. He's telling, all right, Gideon, you guys, I've heard your cries. I'm going to free you from the Midianites. And you know, Gideon's got to be like, sweet. We've got God behind us, and then he gathers an army of 32,000 warriors. The Bible even calls them warriors. If someone gets called a warrior, I want to know them. And so he, they've got 32,000. He's all amped up. Blades are sharp, and let's do this. God said, we're going to kick their butts. I'm interpreting, but we're going to go, and we're going to dominate. We're going to be free. This is going to go amazing. The problem is, is God sees that they've got 32,000 warriors, and he doesn't like the odds. So some of you are like, oh, so, so he's going to go find some other armies. Not so much. Judges 7-2 begins to unfold. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. That's what some of us go like, oh, I need to wait and pray a little bit more because I think I misheard God. Uh, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me. That they saved themselves by their own strength. See, don't ever think that the Bible no longer is relevant to us. See, some of us are in jeopardy of thinking that we're doing what we're doing and have what we have on our own strength. If you think that the money in your accounts and the job that you have and the children or the family or the friends or the supply that you have in your life is under your own doing and God had no part in it, you have missed a major boat. Oftentimes the Israelites would forget that they needed God. You and I do the same thing. See, some of us right now think what we're doing is good enough. 
You're like, no, David, I, I got a job. I got that job. I went to school. I studied. And the money I've got, the family I've got, no, I did it. I know how this all works. I, I put it all together. And you think that what you're doing is, is good enough and you've got enough power on your own to make things thrive. And so I need to give you a very confusing pastoral statement. That's just how we do things in our sermon. So here's, here's what it is. If what you can do is good enough, your good enough isn't good enough. Now, I'll break this down, okay? If what you can do is good enough, stop. If what you do each day as a parent is good enough, you're like, that's good enough. I can do this. I can manage this. If what you do at school or your job or whatever you do, if it's good enough, if you go to bed at night and be like, what I did, what I accomplished on my own, oh, that's good enough. If what you can do is good enough, your good enough is not good enough. In other words, if what you're accomplishing in life you are doing under your own power, your own brain, your own abilities, if what you're doing is even with the help of others, if that is good enough for you, you have missed the full life God intended. If you want to know the secret to life, it's to involve God. Because if you choose not to involve God in what you do, you are not doing all that you can do. And it's, it, it just separates us, and unfortunately it separates us. And some, of, some of us are fine with just having a mediocre life, but that doesn't sound like fountain springers. Most of the fountain springers I know are like, no, I want the best life that God intended for me to live, and that's not a perfect life or a pain-free life, but I want the life, I want to live the life, be the life that God intended. Don't ever be satisfied with what's just going on in your life. And so God begins to do stuff that... Uh, well, in their context, uh, isn't fun. Here we go. Uh, Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. Can you imagine, for those of you who are part of the military, if before, right before you're about to go into battle, hey, if you guys are afraid, you can hang back. Most of you be like, no, we're not going to say that. In fact, I rarely, I don't know anybody who's ever been to war who was not afraid at the moment that they were going. So, so to say that in the moment, of course, you're like, hey, I don't want to say this. A lot of people are going to raise their hands. Whoever's timid or afraid may leave the mountain and go home, and that's what happened. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. I mean, that's where you begin to like, God, I don't know about your plan. This is the moment where you're like, I think we're going backwards. You were supposed to add an army. You didn't like our odds. And you want us to have victory and be free. And God is erasing portions of the army. If you think we've gotten to the worst part, we haven't. Watch this next verse. But the Lord told Gideon, yeah, there's still too many. That's where you start to go like, I don't know if I'm hearing God. I think I've, it's something I ate that I just need to wait some time on this. There are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. I'll summarize what happens. God basically tells them, hey, you need to hydrate your troops. So they go down to the spring, and as they're all going down to the spring and they're drinking water, God speaks to Gideon and says, all right, here's how I want you to do this. The fellas that uh, get down on their knees and stick their faces in the water, I want you to watch them and count them. And the guys that kind of just crouch down, dip their hands in the water, and bring their hands up to their faces and lick it like a dog would lick it? I want you to choose the guys that, that do that, that bring the water up to their mouths. Gideon's probably like, oh, man, I hope that's a good number. I mean, can you imagine sitting in the moment? It's like, it's like just watching and waiting, going, how are they going to do it? Because he's not really allowed to tell them what to do. He's just got to watch them and observe them. 
And watch what happened. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, if you haven't done the math and figured out what just happened, only 300 men, only 300 men crouched down and gathered water in their hands to bring it up. And if you haven't followed and tracked with math, I get that. I didn't do well in algebra either. We've gone from 32,000 warriors to 300. See, many of us think that our problem in life is that the numbers and the odds are against us. And if you're anything like me, I've had conversations with people that I care about. I've had conversations, especially with God, where I have whined to him and to the people around me. I know, I know you probably have never done this and, and do not relate whatsoever, but I just got to get it off of my chest. There's times that I have whined, especially to my wife. Can you believe this? Or, or we, I wish we had her. And I just whine. I whine about, about the odds against us. And what I find so profound is I think God often, listen, wants the odds against us. We're fighting like, no, I don't want the odds. If God truly loved me, he would make the odds so overwhelming that it would be glaring. He gets all the glory, and he's like, no, I want you to depend on me. I want you to rely on me, so I've got to whittle down your army. Verse 8 tells us, so Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept the 300 men with him. Can I just put an idea, I, I want to put an idea in your life. For those of you who are on the verge of giving up, you think that you're outnumbered, the odds are against you, the world's against you, and you're like, I don't know what to do. Perhaps the season you're in may be an army reduction. Perhaps the season that you're in is not that God has abandoned you, but he wants to make sure that he gets full credit for what he wants to do in your life. And many of us are like, but that sounds painful, uh-huh. That sounds scary. Oh, you better believe it. <laughs> Perhaps the moment that you're in is not God turning his back on you. It's not the world against you. It is the hand of God who loves you so much. He wants to make sure that you don't get prideful. So what does an uncommon Christian do? What does an uncommon person do when they want to live life and change the world? If you don't like what happens in Orlando, when you don't like what happens globally, and you're like, I want to break that trend, David. I'm tired of hearing all the bad news and what people are doing to each other. I want to break this trend. If you want to be that uncommon person, I'll tell you a couple things we can learn in this story. Here's the first one. God is the source of the power you need to overcome whatever you need to overcome. God is the power. Some of us were relying completely on ourselves and, and we're like, okay, I'm going to try to fix this. No, you need God. You need his power in your life. Think about it, how irrational it is to not press in and rely on the power of God. Think about your cell phone. <laughs> Some of you, about halfway through the morning, your cell phone's already dead. Some of you, you know, maybe midway, you maybe you're better. I mean, if you have a superior phone like an iPhone, maybe that doesn't happen to you. Uh, just a commentary. But you, I think most of us understand what happens when a, when a cell phone dies. You freak out. Most of you do. What do we do? And, and I don't think, no rational person that I know, of course, that may have happened. When your cell phone dies, what do you do? You don't go to the cell phone store and be like, yeah, my phone, it's just, it doesn't work anymore. I need another one with some power in it. No, you do what most people do. You plug the thing in. 
Some of you have chargers everywhere all over in life. You've got chargers in your car, your house, everywhere. You plug in everywhere. You should go to an airport. It's nuts nowadays, people trying to find outlets. It's like food, but it's not. It's, so when your phone is dead, you plug it in. I find it fascinating. We know what to do with our phones, but we don't know what to do ourselves. When you don't have the power to do what you need to do to overcome it, we typically, we look at ourselves, we look at the people around us, we, we become naysayers, whiners. I'm telling you, God is the source of power. You are not able to do what you're supposed to do in life without God. If you are not relying on God, you will not achieve and be a part of all that God wishes you to be a part of. So you may wonder, like, well, how do I plug into God? I mean, is, do, I, do I just... Go to church, how, how does this play out? I would tell you it's easier than that. I'm going to read a, a list of verses, and, and, and they're not going to be anywhere on the screen. I just want you to hear this, and I want you to catch something. I think you'll catch it. Judges 6.36 says, Gideon said to God. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God. Chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon. Verse 5, there the Lord told him. Verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon. Verse 9, during the night the Lord said to Gideon. It appears that God and Gideon talk regularly. See, many of us have negated the power of God by just not talking to him. You're like, well, but I, David, I, yeah, I say the Lord's Prayer, and, and, and you get into the mix of a, of a ritualistic prayer life. I'm telling you, God wants to be connected to you, and the best way to connect to him is to talk to him regularly have you ever considered the thought that before you go into the interview you should press into god god i need your power parents i beg of you to rely on the power of god to be the parent you're supposed to be for those of you who are single trying to live single life the way that honors god ask god to give you the power for whatever mountain you are facing, whatever circumstances, do not negate the fact that every single day, all throughout the day, you should be saying, God, I need your power. Have a conversation with him rather than just a desperate plea. God is the source of the power you need to overcome. And listen, prayer releases the power of God on earth. If you think that I am over speaking about prayer, God often does not do anything until we ask him to. If you, if you debate that, go read your Bible. All over the place, God waits and waits for us to say, will you please be involved? So I'm just going to push it over to you for a second. I want you thinking, how often do you talk to God? How intimate are the conversations? How often do you say, God, I need your power? I encourage you to do that all throughout the day for the big things and the small things. Now, that's not the only thing I want you to grab a hold of. We learn a little bit more. Let's go to the Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. That night the Lord said, get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over them. And I love how much God knows us. But if you're afraid to attack, he's like, mm-hmm. Go down to the camp with your servant, Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took Pura and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled into the valley. Watch this. Like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore. Too many to count. 
Don't read over those and be like, that's not significant to me. Oh, yeah, it is. Don't forget there are 300 warriors at this time. If you're like, well, how does that compare to the Midianites? There are more Midianites than they can count. They are so grand and so big and so powerful that whoever was counting, like, I give up. The beaches, that's what they are. There's tons of them. And so Gideon's scared. He's like, should we risk this? This is a big deal. And God's like, I know you're afraid, but here's what I want you to do. Go down to the camp. It's like, that does not sound like a good idea. But Gideon risks. He takes his servant. They go down to the camp. They, they listen and kind of eavesdrop into some conversations. And they hear some dreams that some of the Midianites are having. Dreams that God had given them. Dreams that, that they heard about this piece of bread rolling down the hill and destroying all of them. And it was Gideon. And Gideon's like, that's me. They said my name. And he all of a sudden has this courage. But do not forget what's about to happen. 300 men going to battle with hundreds of thousands of soldiers. So what I would encourage you to do, do not just think that you can be an uncommon Christian by sitting in your room and praying. You've got to get active. You've got to start risking. You won't fully trust God without risking for God. And what I would contend is, here's the danger. Many of us are just asking God to do everything without a willingness to risk for God. I'm going to get real personal with you. Some of us are trying to raise our kids up to be followers of Jesus Christ. Yet we are not bold enough to risk losing friends by making sure we teach them what the Bible says. Some of us are leading businesses and we just see the bottom dollar rather than the God who made us. It's a risk to run a business God's way. It's a risk to be a single person and live a pure life. It's a risk to go to school and stand up for your faith. Do you understand that our world is desperate for people to intervene and that they're desperate for people willing to risk for God? And I would contend that many Christians nowadays just sit and do nothing. There's a cultural study that I thought was intriguing about all this. In 1975, some of you are going to hate this story, by the way, just prepping you. In 1975, a guy named Roger Hart conducted a study in a small town in Vermont. He went to this small town in Vermont, studied the crime rate, figured out what was going on dangerously in the community. But then he also tracked 86 kids, permission with the parents, and he watched the parents, he listened to the parents and the kids, and he tracked literally the distance that those kids were allowed to go from their house. 86 kids. And he tracked them, and I, I'll, I'll tell you something. The four- and five-year-olds traveled unsupervised throughout their neighborhoods, and by the time they were 10, most of the kids had the run of the entire town, and the kids' parents weren't even worried. Some of you are like, mm, those were the good old days. Many of you right now are going, well, it's David, it's not 1975. Uh, Roger Hart went back in 2014. He went back to the same town. He went back to document the children of the children that he had originally tracked in the 70s. He, don't worry, he also tracked the crime rate. <laughs> so he tracked the kids, and what, what he found out, listen to this, they just didn't have very far to take me regarding how far they were able to go. Just walking around their property, in other words, the huge circle of freedom on the maps had grown tiny. They were not allowed to travel beyond their property. Most were afraid to do so. So he, 
rational person is like, well, David, like, it's 2014. The crime rate has risen. No, it hasn't. Not in that little town in Vermont. It was very fascinating to watch this study. He even says, near the end, fear of the world outside our door narrows the circle of our lives. Follow me on this. I'm not telling you to be careless with your children. Katie and I are not careless with our children. I would never tell you to be careless with your children, but I also would never tell you to stop risking for God. And many of us in our mindset of trying to be safe people, making sure that everything is put together makes sense to us. Well, here's what I would say. Our fear of risk is stealing our experiences with God. Some of you, if I could tell you that you could experience a miracle of God, you'd be like, please sign me up. However, I must ask you, if you want to experience a miracle of God, are you living the way God said to live? Are you trusting God with your finances so you can see a miracle in that? Are you trusting him with your time so you can see a miracle in that? Are you trusting him with your single life, your married life, your dating life, with your school, your work? Are you trusting God with the things in your life? Are you risking with God? And many of us are like, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm going to have you again ask some questions of yourself. Again, I, I want you just thinking internally. Don't answer out loud. But if you had to make a list right now, could you make a list of the risks that you are currently making for God? If I ask you just over coffee, we're sitting down. If I were to say, hey, what's a recent risk that, that you're taking with God? Some of you, I know what you do. I, I, I communicate with you via email. Some of you, you're risking tithing, and it's freaking you out. And you're going, I don't know. That could be your risk. Some of you, it's how you're raising your kids. You're like, whoa, we are doing this. I don't know if this is scary. I'm telling you, if you can't list or at least name one risk for God, there's no way you're going to be able to live that uncommon life. If, you, if you're missing the whole point, if you're missing the whole point of this whole sermon, God's top desire is that we would depend on him. Uncommon people depend on God, on his power, his provision. And what a profound story of a group of 300 going in saying, we need God. He's obviously going to have to intervene in this. Are you living in such a way that you even need God? If you aren't, the likelihood of you seeing God do miracles in and through your life diminish quite a bit. If you don't like that, that's just what we learn from God. Risk. Dependence. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you some time. We, we do this as a church. I want to give you some time just to press into God, have a private conversation with him. So if you would bow your heads, close your eyes. And I encourage you to talk to God just privately and just ask him, God, are there risks for you that I'm not taking for you? And maybe you already know the risk you're supposed to. Maybe your prayer is, God, give me the boldness and the strength to do what I already know I'm supposed to do. I'm going to stop talking and you just press into a conversation with God.
God, I want to thank you for this story. And I pray for everybody listening, whatever they are wrestling with, however they are outnumbered, God, I pray that you will give them the boldness to depend on you, to rely on your power. God, I pray for strength and boldness and wisdom, all that that we crave and need. And God, for those who have never even surrendered their lives to you and asked that, that you just fill their lives and be a part of it, God, may, may you let them know that you are the only source of lasting power, lasting hope. And God, I commit to you that we as a church will take bold risks for you. We will follow your path, your direction, because that's the full life. God, we love you so much. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I know, I know you want me to finish this story. You're going to have to go read it for yourself. And you're going to read about a victory. You're going to read about an amazing victory. And I'll just give you a hint into this. It involves a torch, a jar covering the torch, and some trumpets. You're like, what about the swords and the cannons? That No, not involved. It's a pretty profound story of what God can do with 300. For those of you who feel outnumbered, you aren't. God loves you so much to walk with you. I hope you have an incredible week relying on the power of God. You're dismissed.